and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Mary Agnes Carey, Partnerships Editor here at KHN, and I'm filling in for Julie Rodner this week. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping on Thursday, December the 12th at 10.30 a.m., and as always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we're joined by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Good morning, everybody. Kimberly Leonard of the Washington Examiner. Happy to be here. And my KHN colleague, Emery Huderman. Good to be here. It's great to have you. And as our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of this podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. So I want to start with something that we don't see a lot of these days, bipartisan support for legislation, right? Mm -hmm. The House, by a margin of 377 to 48, passed a bill. It's technically called the Fiscal 2020 National Defense Authorization Act that includes 12 weeks of paid parental leave for federal workers. Here's what I'm curious about, and I think other people will be too. How did a parental leave provision get tucked into a defense measure that also creates a space force that's been a priority for President Trump? Kimberly, how do we get here? Yeah, it's amazing. It apparently really does take rocket science to get paid leave in America. Um, Either that or Oliver. John Oliver is now writing the I know, I know. I can already wait to see this one, right, this week, right now. So this is a huge uh, victory for uh, those who've been working on this cause. Uh, People who work for the federal government, about two million workers, uh, they have leave, but they're not, they don't get paid while they're away. And so even though it's uh, less... Um, broad than a lot of Democrats would have wanted to see. It still would allow for new parents, whether it's adoption, whether it's foster care, whether it's a birth, to uh, get paid while they take time off work. In exchange, um, the president is getting his Space Force, which is essentially like the Air Force, but for out of space. Um, and so what this bill does is it puts the benefits more in line with uh, people who work in the military. Um, and, and so the federal workers end up having similar benefits. The reason it isn't as broad is because it doesn't ex- extend to what we call sick leave, which is your kid gets sick, your uh, parents are ill and you need to take care of them, you get sick, you're undergoing key chemotherapy. So it doesn't include that, but it is a big step forward for those who've been working on paid leave. Um, We know that Ivanka Trump has been pushing this really hard. And the fact that they're able to get bipartisan consensus on it is a pretty big deal. And this is different than the Federal Family Medical Leave Act, right, that applies to workers, but there's no pay for that. But that that is, applies to everybody inside and out of government, everybody, except, for, except right. for some small businesses are exempt, right. and it's unpaid. Um, it, you have to leave. You're not. I mean, some, some businesses do pay or allow you to use sick leave or whatever else, but this is paid. Sure. And it looks like- And it's uh, the biggest change to family leave, I believe, since the Clinton administration. I think that's yes. correct. Yeah, yeah. And and there has there has been sort of this ongoing discussion on Capitol Hill about what do we do next about paid leave? Democrats would really like to add a payroll tax so that everyone gets leave, whether sick or parental. And Republicans have sort of introduced their own approaches in the past couple of years, which is new. Um, you have a small group who want to um, allow people to tap into Social Security early as a way to fund their paid parental leave. And then there is a bipartisan approach that was recently introduced in which parents could tap into the child tax credit, which was doubled under the Republican tax overhaul. So basically what they would do is take out that tax credit early, about $5,000, and then sort of uh, 
get a little bit less in subsequent years to make up that difference. Right. So a ton of approaches, but it looks like the one that the House passed is going to get through the Senate. It looks like it, it's got green lighted. It seems like the, there's some Republican opposition, as I understand the Senate, but it looks like it's going to pass and President Trump is willing to sign it. I've got that yes, right? Yes, yes. It's definitely on track to do that. Mm-hmm. Okay. And of all the things we're going to talk about today, you know, we always give the caveat about things could change before you yes, hear this. They, yes, this they is, can. Things could change before we finish <laughs> taping this. This is the one thing that might be the same. Everything right. else is fluid. Everything else moving. <laughs> Completely, fluid. really fluid this week. Right? All right. Well, let's talk about one of those. It fluid. might have already changed. <laughs> May have changed. All right. We better get going then. So talking about things that are fluid, let's talk about surprise medical bills. This fluid. Is fluid. This is one of those things that we have talked about forever. Republicans want to fix it. Democrats want to fix it. The pres- President Trump wants to fix it. Classic example is you go to the emergency room in a hospital that's covered under your insurance plan. While you're there, someone that doesn't take your health insurance treats you, and bam, you get that surprise medical bill. So again, we've had uh, lots of talk about it, but now maybe some movement, maybe not. Let's get into it a little bit. Earlier this week, the bipartisan leadership of the House Energy and Commerce Committee and the chair of the Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions, they announced a proposal that would prevent doctors from sending those unexpected bills to patients when they're treated in a hospital that accepts their insurance. And it would establish a system for resolving billing-related disputes between those doctors and the insurance companies. And then, late last night, The Democratic and Republican leaders of the House Ways and Means Committee announced they had reached a deal on ending surprise medical bills. Uh, The details are a little scarce there, but the package includes a, quote, independent mediated negotiation process to resolve billing agreements. So, Joanne, can we interpret this? And I think I know some of your answers since we just talked about how fluid it is. Does this mean we might see something by the end of the year? Maybe not. Are we looking for next year? I don't know if it's the end of the year um, because the end of the year is next week. Yeah, that's Um, right. But maybe because they are they are seriously trying to get some legislation done. I do think this gets done. I mean, and if it doesn't get done by next week, then you have you know the holiday break, and then there's a slow start in January. It gives the opponents time to try to kill it again, which they came pretty close to doing in in August. But the fact that it's gotten this momentum back, and the fact that there's a fair amount of bipartisan agreement, gives it a lot of momentum. And I think at some point in the in the foreseeable future, it gets done. If it doesn't get done next week, it might take a few months to get that momentum back. Um, Chuck Schumer, I do not believe the Senate um, a Democratic leader. I do not believe he's on the last. Patty version. Murray is Patty not Murray on. She's the ranking Democrat. Right. So it's not done. Done. We're not there. Um, if Julie was still here today, instead of being out, she would tell us exactly the history of New York Democratic senators going back at least to Senator Moynihan and why the New York hospitals and teaching hospitals have torpedoed things like this. And I don't remember all the details the way she would you have. You gave us a clip it's That's right, important. It's, Schumer doesn't want it. The hospitals in his state and New York City don't want it. Um, it's not a done deal. But there's a lot of progress. I mean, it, it's something that just People just don't think it's fair, and you're sort of powerless to stop it. We've talked about this before. You know, even in, we are really informed consumers. We have we have problems with this. Um, you know, we have problems with friends tell uh, come to us with help how to avoid it. You say, um, you know, it's it's it just doesn't sit well with people across the political spectrum. There are solutions that have been already been tried in the states. I think it gets done. I don't know exactly when. We've talked before about the lobbying efforts, the advertising efforts. Emery, you and our KHN colleague, Rachel Bluth, wrote a great story about private equity right, out to yeah. push against a fix for this uh, this legislation. Where do you think they'll be here? What can we expect from them? 
honestly, I think as long as this bill isn't dead or passed, you're going to still hear from these uh, these private equity groups because they have a lot of money at stake in this fight. And of course, they'll keep spending their money to make sure that they can keep bringing it in. And so really, I mean, even next year, if it passes, we could see attack ads or at least money thrown into races that would try and uh, target those people who brought this bill ultimately to its end. Sure, and in anticipation perhaps of that, there's the uh, sweeteners, as we like to call them on Capitol Hill, those little bells and whistles they throw in to bring more support. On this particular bill, the one agreed to by uh, the Republican head of the HELP Committee and the bipartisan uh, membership of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, we're talking about things like community health centers, increased price transparency, try to explain who pays what and why getting generics to market faster, and raising that tobacco age from 18 to 21, which I believe is something that Mitch McConnell, who's the majority leader in the Senate, supports. So maybe we stay tuned on that one. Yeah, that's right. And it's something that they kind of have framed as, you know, dealing with the vaping problem that we're seeing, um, the high rates among teens and, um, you know, the separate issue of, of illnesses and deaths that we've noticed. Sure. All right. We'll stay tuned there. Let's move to something that mentioned fluid, talking about fluid, rather, is on the floor right now, could be passed by the time we finished taping today. We'll see what happens. This is something, again, lawmakers in both parties and President Trump say is a priority, lowering prescription drug prices. The House is debating a measure sponsored by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi that would use the government's buying power to cut the cost of medicines for Medicare and private health insurance plans. Among its provisions, the bill would require the government to negotiate the cost of up to 250 brand-name drugs that don't have any competition and cost the healthcare system a whole lot of money. Insulin for diabetes would have to be included, which is very interesting because we've written, we all have written a lot about the rising cost of insulin. Emory, I'd like you to take us through how the bill overlaps with President Trump's drug pricing agenda, how it compares to bipartisan legislation in the Senate and whether or not we could expect action before Congress leaves town later this month. That seems like kind of a heavy lift. It sure does. I mean, especially as Joanne pointed out, the end of this month is next week. So really, we're looking at a very short timeline. The congressional month, we should say. Exactly. Not the calendar month, Congress's month. Except if they don't finish their business next week, which is always a possibility, then then the year doesn't end until February. Okay. Gotcha. And we, and we do have true. the government spending bill expiring on right. the 20th, so that's ex, extra pressure, but right. please. Right. We've got a lot to do at this point. We do. So what we're looking at is uh, when it comes to the Pelosi drug bill, we've been hearing a lot of attack ads, a lot of attacks from Republicans in particular. The fact is that Trump, when he was first talking about this as a candidate, he was in favor of some sort of negotiating that would try and bring drug prices down. Because of that, a lot of people were like, oh, is Nancy Pelosi going to be able to pull off a deal with the White House that would bring something through? Of course, Mitch McConnell has something to say about that, and he has said that the Pelosi plan will not get a vote in the Senate. So what we're looking at today, the Pelosi plan is going to get a vote on the on the House floor. We're expecting today. Um, we're expecting it to pass with Democratic support. There was some uh, fighting within uh, uh, Democrats. There were um, progressives who were saying they might block the bill because they didn't think it was aggressive enough. Um, Nancy Pelosi ultimately came to an agreement with them earlier this week in which they raised the floor, I guess you would say, on the number of drugs that could be negotiated by the HHS secretary from 35 to 50, um, which apparently apparently was enough to make progressives happy along with uh, another provision. And the bottom line is the CBO came out with a report saying that this is going to reduce the deficit over 10 years by $5 billion. That's one point in favor of Nancy Pelosi's plan. Uh, 
like I said, the Senate's not going to pick it up. So we have to look at other bills. There's one in the Senate uh, introduced by Grassley and Wyden. The Grassley-Wyden bill uh, focuses in particular on something that's also in the Pelosi plan, which is a cap on inflation, um, on inflationary increases. Short version, it would make it so that if drug companies raise their prices faster than the rate of inflation, start going back to 2016, they'd have to give that money back to the government in the form of a rebate. Um, that's something that a lot of Republicans actually don't like, despite the fact that Chuck Grassley is the one who introduced this bill along with his uh, his Democratic counterpart. And so that is a pretty hard wall to come up against, even considering the fact that the White House has said that their favorite bill in this in this whole um, mix is the Grassley-Wyden plan. Right. Another provision, I think, is in all these bills is this idea of a cap on fee-for-service Medicare. The beneficiary would not have to spend beyond a certain level. Many of us have that with our insurance plans at work, not in Medicare for fee-for-service, which about two-thirds of beneficiaries are in. I thought that was interesting. Does that help get it over the finish line? Well, it gets, it gets it over the finish line in the House. I mean, it would have gotten over the finish line without that, but that's an extra... It's a, it, that becomes a talking point because, or a political point, because I don't think the Senate Democrats, excuse me, the Senate Republicans are going to go for that. But the the other thing here, the larger dynamic, is that this was an area where there was more overlap between Trump and Pelosi a few months ago. When Pelosi released her plan in September, Trump tweeted something nice about it. I nice don't remember. to see your plan. Nice yeah. to see the speaker. We have plan. in our story. Something like that. Sarah Carlin had sure, quoted sure, the sure. story yesterday. I don't remember the exact words, but it was a it was a rah rah Nancy tweet, and then. <laughs> Three weeks later, when we were, you know, beginning impeachment, it was like, oh, this is the worst thing in the history of the world tweet. So, um, you know, the, the White House has come out against it. They say that the Pelosi bill will hurt um, innovation. There'll right. be fewer drugs that get developed. Um, you know, terrible, 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 hurt seniors. But obviously the I word has... Um, injected itself. Uh, impeachment? That one. That one. Yeah, is, uh, very, that's not so fluid. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's um, moving. Yeah. That, one's moving. Um, that one's moving. But yeah. that has... That has um, they're, they're, the Republicans are, were very split over, including within the White House and within the administration. Sure. They were split over some of Trump's ideas on drug prices in the first place. But the whatever um, affinity Trump had for the Pelosi plan was shattered by impeachment. Now it's bad, bad, bad when it was yay, yay, yay. So, yeah, the Pelosi plan is not – the Pelosi drug plan will get through the, the, the House. It also just does give more momentum for doing something in the Senate. Sure. It doesn't mean that the Pelosi plan gets passed in the Senate because it won't. But the Grassley-Wyden plan is sort of stuck in the Finance Committee. McConnell does not want it to bring that up. But a really big vote in the House and the publicity about it in ways in which it does actually still overlap with some of Trump's goals could get some momentum in the Senate. It's still tough in the Senate, but it, it's not impossible the Senate takes up something. How does election year politics figure into this, Kimberly? Yeah, I mean, this is a messaging bill. Um, they've dared the president to um, support the legislation by adding, you know, Portions that kind of look like some of the rhetoric that he was talking about in 2016 by tying the price of drugs to what other countries pay because he always talks about, you know, how other countries take advantage of the fact that we pay so much more and they have lower prices. Um, when Democrats kind of say often on the Hill, we want to show that we can um, walk and chew gum. This is what they're talking about. Right. They want to show, hey, we can do impeachment. But remember when we promised during 2018 that we were the best party to handle health care? We can also act on health care. And so it is a very serious messaging bill. It, it, it shows that, um, you know, if 
voters elect a Democrat to the White House in 2020, then they would aim to lower prescription drug prices by allowing this negotiation, although I think it would be much harder, actually, to get past um, advocates if it were a serious threat versus now when it's just a messaging bill. But, um, you know, all the Democrats who are running in the primary say they want Medicare to negotiate, some more so um, than others. Some believe in being much more aggressive than the Pelosi bill would be. Um, but this is very much a messaging bill that Democrats can fulfill their promises that in 2020 that that voters should should you know look at what Democrats have to offer on drug pricing. The other thing with the Pelosi bill is we often talk on the, on the podcast about the difference between um, national health spending, what it costs the government, and what it costs in people's pocketbooks, you know, what you pay when you have to get a drug. And the Pelosi bill actually does both. It reduces prices That's for right. patients and consumers, whatever you want to call patients nowadays, and it also <laughs> reduces spending for the government. So, you know, it, it is, you know, one could argue it's a fiscally conservative Democratic bill. Now, obviously, it, it you know, Kimberly's totally right. It's a messaging bill, but it is sort of interesting because we don't we usually see cost shifting in healthcare, and this one actually is a dual pronged approach to drug costs. Yeah. So and, yeah, maybe that will help uh, get it forward. Maybe the fact if you're going to cap Medicare out of pocket for fee for service beneficiaries. I mean, I guess we'll just see what happens as we move forward. Talking well, about Medicare in an election year really can't hurt you, as any oh, member you of Congress knows, because um, the seniors tend to be a pretty reliable voting block. So and, if you yeah. want to bring them out, that's one way to do it. And oh. it also has benefits like dental care for Medicare, which is current. They use, they oh, use some of the savings yeah. to improve uh, Medi- other Medicare benefits. Yeah, too. I was just going to say they're boosting and vision and hearing aids. They're going to be adding those in, too. So they're showing that they're making Medicare more generous at a time when uh, candidates are talking about making Medicare more generous to more people. Much more generous. Much more. Well, there Much you more go. than those benefits, yes. So before we go to our extra credits, I want to hit a couple of areas we've talked about before. Uh, I want to circle back. Joanne, last week you gave us the latest on this ongoing feud before health and hum- between rather Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar and Seema Verma, who runs the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. They were called to the White House this week for a meeting with Acting Chief of Staff Nick Mulvaney and some other folks. And Pence. And Pence. I mean, oh, that's th- right, this, Vice President Pence. If please. you want to talk fluid, this one's Niagara Falls. The, okay. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the 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 feud between um, um, Secretary Azar and CMS Administrator Verma is open, public, and vituperative. They're both sides are you know what I think we had a quote in last night's story saying it's all leaks and lies. It, it's I, it's pretty astonishing to watch. Um, we have done a lot of reporting um, about um, the feud, the White House meetings. The policy areas that have been affected because Trump is trying to run as a successful health care candidate, and there's, this has created problems on both drug policy, drug cost policy, and ACA replacement, and, and a bunch of smaller issues. Um, there have been some wild stories about, you know, Seema Verma, we had a story Saturday night about Seema Verma being robbed of her 40-something thousand dollars they, worth of they jewelry. They broke into her car, right? It was they in broke her into car. It, it wasn't her speech. personal car. It was like she was, she was on official business. She was giving a speech right. in California. Right, right. Um, and, and the car was broken into, and... And luggage was robbed, and she had uh, valuable. She had quite a bit of jewelry on her, which was not insured, and she she submitted a claim for HHS to pay for it, which they did not. Um, there's there's the story that we've we've learned that she had very uh, rough relationship with her uh, with Azar's predecessor, uh, Tom Price, um, and that she was either we had different versions of whether she hired a lawyer, whether she was thinking about hiring a lawyer, what exactly happened there. But you know, she accused him of. Um, hostile work environment and you know CMS has denied some of these reports um it, it is just you know i i rarely have seen two 
officials in one agency, you know, duel it out like this in public. Whether they both, the White House has said, you know, work it out. Knock it out. Behave. Right? Get together. <laughs> act kids. like grownups. Yeah. Um, but it's really hard to see them fixing something that's gotten so bitter. So um, it's quite a saga. Well, yeah. I mean, Washington attracts big egos, right? Big egos, big personalities. But this is something they're, else. They're I think, I think right. soap opera, the word soap opera with an adjective I won't repeat on the air, were used uh, to describe what's happening here. Yes, it's, it's as HHS turns. I mean, there's it's—it's—it's—it's. <laughs> it's, 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 there's some friction within HHS because of its design. You've got the cabinet, and we, and we mentioned this last week, I think. You've got the, you know, Azar is a cabinet secretary. He's a member of the cabinet. The CMS administrator is not a cabinet member. They're the second person in that agency, but they are running Medicare, Medicaid, and Obamacare. That's a lot of power. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of political sensitivity. It's a big job. So have we seen tension before? We've seen some tension before. Have we seen, you know, open warfare not in public, maybe behind closed doors, but certainly not like this. I mean, I actually, I mean, my reporters are mostly covering this, but I actually ended up in a parking lot at night texting my boss saying, I'm safe, getting documents. So, <laughs> I mean, it's been pretty wild. Wow, that is wild. <laughs> Kimberly, yeah, you want I was to going there? to say, well, because I've kind of, you know, been, I've obviously been following the amazing reporting over at Politico, and I do, I was kind of looking back at um, some of the history that, and you kind of mentioned this in your article too, that Seema Verma has had with other staff. There have been a lot of different Medicaid chiefs since she started at CMS. Yeah, yeah. And then um, while she was in Indiana, she did have a clash with a top official there who ended up getting fired by Pence. Um, So that was that's some of the background, too. Um, You know, they both both Azar and uh, Seema Verma are known for having, you know, very strong personalities and getting in uh, rifts with a lot of different staff. Right, and one of the pendants that was stolen was an Ivanka Trump, approximately $6,000 pendant, in which we found a picture of her wearing when she was talking about cutting benefits to Medicaid recipients, so that probably didn't go over well with people who didn't like her in the first place. (laughs) One thing to think about if either or both of these folks went, the problems you would have with a Senate confirmation process could be a little tough to have in the middle of everything else. So maybe that's uh, a point in their corner to stay or whatever, but nonetheless. Yeah, we've also reported on conflict between some White House officials and Secretary Azar. So, I mean, the whole thing is quite, um, you know, in, in some ways they are more aligned with some of the positions that Seema Verma has taken. So um, it, it is it is a triangle of messiness. All right, and I know that you will keep watching it as will the rest of us. Let's also talk briefly about uh, the Affordable Care Act enrollment period, it ends for it ends on December 15th, rather, uh, at midnight. Um, so, Kimberly, how is enrollment going so far and what can we expect in these last few days? Um, you know, it's chugging along pretty, um, pretty similarly to stable, last right. year's. Yeah, it's a little bit behind. Um, but one big thing to remember that I feel like it's forgotten every year is that there is, you know, automatic enrollment. If you do nothing on your plan, you're automatically enrolled in the same one or a similar one. Now, to those listening who have these ACA plans, you should shop around. You want to make sure that your premiums and out-of-pockets are going to be, you know, similar to the year before or that, you know, there might be a better plan that might work better for you. So really, it's kind of that last – because people hate shopping for health insurance, 
um, they tend to just kind of stay in the same plan and that, you know, will allow them to enroll in the same one, but that they, they could get a better deal if they look around. We saw former President Barack Obama tweet out um, a reminder this week as he has pretty much since he this left office. His signature health policy, yeah. uh, domestic policy achievement, just, I should say. Yeah, just reminding people they can get coverage and, um, you know, because of how the law is working now, there are still people who, if they make under a certain income, can get uh, health insurance that costs almost nothing in premiums. Right. So, um, so it's worth shopping around, worth looking at what's available. Um, but you know, so it's it's a little bit behind last year. But I've also noticed that Seema Verma has tweeted more about it this year, quite a few times actually. It's well, also- I mean, there's this sort of funny situation where you know they have they this administration does not like the ACA. They did try to repeal it. Um, they have done policies that Democrats call sabotage, but, you know, sort of two points. Like, one, they're still taking credit for running it well while they're trying to get rid of it. And the second thing is that, you know, the Democrats keep jumping up and down and screaming sabotage, and and yet this law has survived. It's, it not only survived the political assault and impeachment of, excuse me, of replace, repeal and replace, but it has also just survived, you know, it's expensive, there are problems with it. It is stable. And, and, and reduced marketing uh, from the administration, right? Reduced right. outreach to help people understand it. Even taking the penalty for the requirement that you have insurance no gone away. Right. right. The subsidies have proven to be the bigger draw right. than the mandate And the affordability issue, and this is not fluid. This is static. <laughs> the affordability issue remains. And neither party right. has fixed it. And if you are not getting a big subsidy and you're buying insurance by yourself or if you're getting, you know, you're, you're getting a subsidy but on the higher end of that income and you're not getting a huge subsidy, it's expensive. It's really expensive in that, you know, health care, whether you have employer-sponsored insurance, whether you have ACA insurance, whatever you got, health care in America is expensive. And that is a problem that will not be solved between now and the 2020 election. Right. So if you are currently enrolled, as Kimberly noted, Check out your options at healthcare.gov if you think you might qualify for a subsidy or simply want to look at the options on the plan to do that as well. So that's the news this week. Now it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we suggest a story that we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We'll post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org backslash health. Joanne, why don't you go first this week? Well, I was going to pick one of our SEMA stories, but there were so many I couldn't pick a favorite. So um, another one of our reporters and one of our podcast colleagues, Alice Olstein, um, wrote a really fun story called Impeachment Committee's Rancor Forged by Decades of Abortion Battles. The House Judiciary Committee was founded in the early 1800s to oversee the federal judiciary, but it has become the Culture War Committee. And abortion being sort of the premier every single year there's an abortion fight. There's, and it takes place right there in the Judiciary Committee. It's a very partisan committee. Partly, you know, it's, it's guns, it's abortion, it's race, but it's really abortion. And Alice sort of wrote a story explaining why we see the theatrics we see. Um, they're not all about impeachment. They're also about abortion. All right, Kimberly. Um, yes, I picked a piece from NPR. Um, and next time you think about complaining about how small seats on a flight have become, just imagine if you were someone who used a wheelchair. Um, and I picked this story because I um, have been dying to write it myself. So it's called Wheelchairs on Planes, Why Can't Passengers Use Their Own on Board? Um, it's by Michael Schulson. It contains a lot of really interesting policy information about you know why planes are kind of built the way they are. And um, it's it's worth a read if you can imagine how difficult it would be to, to you know, have a disability to need the use of your wheelchair and then, um, you know, to have to endure a long flight. Um, so highly encourage uh, folks to, to, to read that. All right. Emery. 
I've got a great story by Sarah Cliff from the New York Times. Uh, she wrote about this kind of accidental study that turned out the first rigorous test of whether um, healthcare insurance signups actually relate to premature death. And the test found that, yes, um, there is actually a correlation between signing up for health insurance and uh, and um, avoiding premature death. And they found this out because basically the Treasury Department sent out letters to a large portion, 3.9 million people who had not signed up for insurance and paid a fine and laid out, hey, this is you paid a fine. This is the difference between being insured and uninsured. And then they were able to study those people who had gotten the letter versus people that, because of a budget shortfall, hadn't gotten the letter. It's really interesting. Oh, my it was, goodness. It was the IRS, right? So it, it was, yeah. It's death and taxes. Exactly. Death and taxes, a letter from the IRS <laughs> what that might actually you help you. Okay. <laughs> so mine is from the Washington Post. A stunning indictment of the U.S. healthcare system in one chart. It's by Christopher Ingraham. And the reason I pick this is sometimes numbers just tell the story. That's certainly the case here. According to data released by Gallup, a quarter of American adults say they or a family member has put off treatment for a serious medical condition because of cost. And that number is the highest it's been in nearly three decades of Gallup polling. Another finding that dropped my jaw, an additional 8% have made that same choice for less serious ailments, meaning a collective 33%, a third of those polled, have prioritized financial considerations over their health. That's tying the high set at 2014. One caution from Gallup, Trump presidency may be influencing those numbers on a partisan level. That's more Democrats and Republicans are reporting cost-related delays for serious conditions. But nonetheless, these figures underscore the importance of focusing on growing health care costs and how those influence health behavior. So that's the news for this week. If you'd like, you can email us at whatthehealth at kff.org, or you can tweet us. I'm at Mary Agnes Carey. I'm at Emory DC. I'm at Joanne Cannon. I'm at Leonard KL. Thanks so much for listening and for watching. Julie will be back next week. In the meantime, be healthy. <laughs>